From the World Economic Forum, I'm Beatrice Icaro, and this is the Book Club Podcast. Hello, and Happy New Year from the World Economic Forum Book Club. If your goal in 2023 is to read more, there's no better place to go than to a library. In this episode, we're joined by two academics from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland who have co-authored The Library, A Fragile History. In their book, Professor Andrew Pedigree and Dr. Arthur van der Ruin journey from the mysterious lost library of Alexandria in Egypt to the public libraries of philanthropist Andrew Carnegie that still stand today, explaining how humans have shaped libraries and they in turn have shaped us. Despite our love of collecting books, they have often been neglected and become tools and targets during times of war, while romance novels have gone from scourge to savior of the modern-day library. My colleague Kate Whiting joins us to interview them and to ask them what inspired them to write the book. Hello, my name's Andrew Pettigree. I'm Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews. Um, I've been working on the history of communication and books for most of my career and um, the director of the Universal Short Title Catalogue, which is an attempt to map all publishing in the first two centuries of print. So I've written extensively on the book culture of the Renaissance period, on early print, on news culture, and now on libraries. And hello, I'm uh, Arthur de Vedeman. I'm a, a research fellow at the uh, University of St. Andrews as well. Um, I come from, uh, from Amsterdam, from the Netherlands, but I've lived in the UK for, um, um, for about uh, a decade now. Um, I started my research really dealing with the history of newspapers uh, and news media, and from that uh, transitioned into the history of publishing more broadly. And uh, since then, uh, having worked in many different um, libraries and, and archives around the world, uh, the history of, of collecting and libraries themselves. Brilliant. It's great to meet you both. Um, and thank you for your time today. Uh, so I guess the first thing is that this book, um, The Library, A Fragile History, it's quite a weighty tome. And as I understand it, it's taken you you know, a lot of research and a long time to write, but it, it's fascinating. And it also looks beautiful as well, which we'll get onto a bit later on. But the history of the library, it's essentially the history of the book, isn't it? And book collections. Um, so I wonder if we could start de by defining what we mean when we're talking about the library um, and whether we can also set that in a global context. Certainly. I mean, Andrew and I have a very flexible, generous interpretation of uh, the definition of the library. Really, we're talking here about any purposefully assembled collection of books. Um, so that can mean a collection of, uh, of three books. Uh, or it can mean a collection of 100,000. And, you know, we need to keep this flexibility because, um, you know, what was a distinguished library throughout history has changed a great deal when you're thinking about quantity. If you're uh, dealing with the uh, 13th century, a collection of a handful of exquisite manuscript books uh, would be an absolute uh, pride and joy of a, of, a, of a prince or a ruler. But, you know, several centuries later, uh, three books doesn't mean all that much. And all of a sudden, a library is, um, requires many more books. And really, um, you know, what, what is a book itself has, of course, also changed over time. So um, that includes uh, handwritten books, uh, printed books. It includes uh, digital books in our age. Um, but before the uh, emergence of the, of the codex uh, around um, in, in the days of the Roman Empire, 
uh, you know, books would be written in, in, in many different types of ways. They could be written on papyrus scrolls, uh, inscribed on, on tablets. And indeed, if you look at a much more sort of global um, history of uh, knowledge transmission, textual culture, you'll see that you know, what we conceive as the standard form of the book is much more flexible if you take into account how uh, the indigenous cultures of the, of the Americas, uh, for example, would, uh, would produce their books. So we try to be as flexible, as inclusive as uh, possible. And I guess it all begins, uh, Andrew, am I right, in Alexandria in ancient Egypt, um, which seems to have been the first library, and that's sort of where you start the book, really. Why was it such an extraordinary place? Well, it was an extraordinary library because it was such uh, an enormous collection. And we must remember here that it's a collection of, of scrolls, mostly inscribed on papyrus uh, at that time, uh, which set um, considerable problems with storage, filing and organisation. Um, but it was also an attempt to create an ac academic uh, and scholarly academy gathering together all the best scholars in the Greek world in this new town of Alexandria, where they were provided with uh, accommodation, free food, and a very generous salary. So uh, not a small number except this opportunity. They managed also to recruit some very distinguished librarians who did a lot of work inventing sort of cataloging systems and storage systems that we would see through the centuries. Uh, and of course, it's also famous, not just for the mere sca the scale of the book, something between 200,000 and 500,000 scrolls, but also for the mystery of its disappearance. Um, nothing survives the Library of Alexandria today. And it not, doesn't really need to be a mystery because um, the papyrus is an extremely good surface on, on which to inscribe text but it's very vulnerable to damp. So every two or three generations, it needs to be recopied to preserve the text. And with a, with a collection of this scale, obviously that was a, a task beyond anyone, uh, with the result that they probably just moulded away. And I think that's something we see sort of frequently throughout the, the book, isn't it? That actually books over the, the centuries have unfortunately been lost for all sorts of different reasons. And at this point, I'm very rudely going to skip over those centuries of scrolls and the books that were carefully being transcribed by monks to public libraries to get more into the modern history of the library, as it were, and talk about Andrew Carnegie of Scotland, who moved across to the, the US and ha was a major influence on, on the establishment of public libraries in the UK and the US, with many still standing today. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit, Arthur, around why he was such a big influence on the public library movement. Well, Carnegie was a, was a true visionary and had had immense influence, probably more influence than anyone else on the uh, on the creation of public libraries. And uh, I, I think, I mean, we have to know a little bit of the, the prehistory there um, in the fact that, you know, most people will think that public libraries have been around for a very long time. And indeed, there have been lots of attempts throughout history uh, to establish public libraries. But as late as the as the middle of the 19th century, there were very, very few public libraries around uh, at all. And even when the Public Libraries Act was passed in 1850 uh, in England, very f uh, which, which basically allowed communities to uh, introduce a, a rate for local taxpayers to erect a public library, 
very few communities took up this uh, initiative. Um, there's, there's, there's lots of reasons for that, but principally because um, many people who wanted access to books had access to a variety of different types of libraries that did not necessarily have to be funded by government itself. Um, so Carnegie comes along really at the end of the 19th century and, and his vision rests on, um, on, on identifying communities that want a public library but don't have one, but haven't necessarily also got the capital, the means um, to, to, um, to introduce them. So he basically went to communities and said, you know, I will give you um, the capital um, to have a public library building. And that was often one of the crucial things that was lacking in, in library provision. Um, as long as you uh, commit to providing an annual fund, that's a, a tenth of the, of the capital sum that I'm investing. So he allowed many small communities to, to make their first step that otherwise they would not have been able to make. And this was a massive success, especially in the British Isles and in the United States, where Carnegie focused most of his philanthropic and as part of your research, and I, I must say before COVID, obviously, before the pandemic, you were able to travel around the world, I would think, to visit many of these libraries. Um, do you have any sort of standout favourites among them? I've actually been, been privileged to work in one of the oldest surviving libraries uh, at Merton College, Oxford. Um, Merton was um, uh, founded in 1264, um, and the library was put together over the following um centuries and it still has a portion of its books chained that is uh, chained to their shelves in order to preserve them from from being stolen it's a terrible system because the whole purpose of books is that you consult one two three or four books together which of course you cannot do if they're all chained to one place um, so but it didn't fall out of favor uh, until the 18th century in many collections People were still buying chains for their books. I've, I've worked uh, very often in the Bodleian, in the oldest part of the library, founded and established in 1602. Uh, Arthur and I have, have spoken for the Thomas Plume Library in Malden, one of the um, parish libraries founded in a great burst, and one of the ones that still survives in its original building. And both of us together went to see some of the finest of the um, Jesuit libraries in Prague, the Strahov and the Clementinium. And what is striking about those libraries, that they seem to make no provision at all where you can sit down and read books. And it's mostly uh, a matter of uh, display of this great array of books. There's very little provision. Almost the purpose or the role that libraries played has changed over time. And initially, public libraries were seen as a way to sort of educate the masses. And I think you talk, call them at one point an instrument of social reform. Um, but then also in South Africa, they were seen as a key tool for emancipation. So how has this sort of view of what a library ought to do changed over time? Well, I, I would say that the, the instrument of, of social uh, reform or indeed control has um, been the stronger one in the early history of the public library, especially for most of the 19th and, and still very much the early 20th century as well. Um, you know, if, if, if the government is going to provide uh, or the local or central government is going to provide libraries to people, libraries need to have a good purpose. Uh, people need to be uh, uh, improved. To the extent that um, in some some libraries, um, librarians would often hide improving nonfiction literature 
amongst the, the stacks of slightly more recreational uh, types of books in the hope that if they had a patron browsing, they might also you know, stumble upon a good book and take it, take it away with them. So, I love so, that idea. It's yeah. sorry, Arthur. It's almost like the um, gateway drug, isn't it? Of of a sort, sort of like if we can get them in with the fiction, then maybe yeah. they'll read the nonfiction. Yeah. yeah. No, and that was that was that continued to be very much in the Norman libraries, where where libraries start to play more of a role of emancipation. I think you can see in in some societies where there is some uh, segregation or uh, or repression, where marginalised groups are allowed to have uh, a space like a library which then becomes very much a focal point for um, uh, both education and for uh, sort of intellectual movements to, to gather. You see this in, uh, in South Africa in the early 20th century. You see it also in uh, the, the southern states of the U.S. on the other Jim Crow. But I should say that's, that's only, you know, those libraries that were funded properly or, or, or were equipped to any decent degree. So that's not, a, that's not sadly a, a, a universal story. There was this idea around fiction that it wasn't seen to be um, really worthy of reading at all. And in fact, um, the novel was touted in New York, I believe, as a cause of insanity at one point, um, you say in the book. And, you know, it was seen as bad for you, probably in the same way that we think of screen time today, maybe. Um, But then interestingly, it shifts and becomes almost the key to library survival. So I wonder, Andrew, if you can talk me through what happened with our feelings around fiction. Well, the, the, the war on fiction began almost as soon as, uh, as printing was invented. Um, some of the first books were uh, romances, Arthurian legends and, and, and uh, prose works of that sort. And people regarded this as particularly unsuitable reading for women. There was a very re- successful romantic series called Amadis de Gaul, and that was produced in lavish uh, volumes, but um, people were very scary, scared of uh, their wives and daughters getting their hands on this. And actually, Don Quixote was banned from being taken to the uh, Spanish-held uh, uh, lands in, in, in uh, Central and Southern America. So it's no new thing. What you do get uh, when you come along to the public libraries is the sort of age-old dilemma of all media. Should they be aiming at instruction and improvement, or should they be aiming at entertainment? And the whole justification of the Public Libraries Act of 1850 was to educate the new industrial classes into their responsibilities as citizens. Now, of course, if you've done a 12-hour day in a factory, you don't want to come back to being at home to being hectored at by improving books. You want to have some relaxation. So for that reason, people tended to shy away from the public libraries and go instead to circulating libraries, commercial libraries run by the corner shops. And this really goes on into the 1940s until you get the coming of the paperback. And it dawns on the libraries that with it being now possible for most people to buy books for themselves, unless they let up a little on things like like romance literature, they'd lose their customs altogether and their justification for existence would disappear. So it's really only in the 1950s and 1960s that the public library accepts its mission as a a tool of recreation and uh, entertainment 
to the extent of taking in lots of Mills and Boone and Harlequin books and things like that. It's quite clear that women are largely missing from quite a lot of the history of the library um, and that they only really come to the fore as librarians during the war, um, but also that their reading tastes, which are the romance novels, are often criticised. So I'm quite interested in what role women have had in the development of the modern library. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I think it's, it's, it should be said that, uh, that women are often obscured uh, in the historical record behind um, their sort of male family members when it comes to library building. This is often the case um, uh, in, for, for example, aristocratic libraries, uh, where, uh, you know, it, it's quite difficult to see whether the, uh, the wife in the relationship uh, or, or the woman as head of the household was responsible for the acquisition or the growth of the library. We see this, for example, with um, King uh, William III of England and his wife Mary II, where, you know, there is a, it's, it, the library is called King William's Library um, in, in the Netherlands, but it was his wife who collected almost all of it. Uh, but because she died before he did, he just sort of kept all the books, and that's how it's gone down in the historical record. Um, I, think, I think women have played a very important role, especially in the uh, late medieval period when it comes to uh, the creation of the first great sort of princely and royal libraries, because they were really the first patrons of uh, these sort of magnificent manuscript books of ours um, and, uh, and, and other high, and high literature that really um, brought the attention uh, of their husbands, the princes and kings, to the fact that they could also acquire these, these uh, lavish books. So we see, you know, elements there. But you're really right that it's only with the era of sort of mass literacy and improvements, universal improvements in women's education, that you have the opportunity for many more women to be uh, to be buying books, to be enjoying them, and to play an active role in the uh, administration of libraries. And we really see them come to the fore as librarians with the public library movement. First of all, uh, very much in the, in the United States of America, and then later also um, uh, in, in Europe uh, itself. And you know, it's it's worth. Um, Remembering that even today, you know, in, in general, women tend to read more than men. Um, and I think if um, in terms of the patrons of public libraries today, women play an extremely important role keeping them alive. I know, you know, as a mother of two, I certainly use the library way more than I ever have done now that I have children. Um, yeah, I, I want to come to um, one of the sections um, of the book, which is called The War on Books. Um during the First and Second World War, um, libraries were instrumental books were sent to soldiers, but they also became weaponized, sort of effectively data banks that held maps um, that were used for combat missions. So, yeah, what roles did libraries play during the war? Well, this is this is um, a subject which I don't think to this point has been adequately treated. I mean, there's a lot of stress on tragic destruction and on uh, and, and on bombing. Um, uh, as if um, uh, books are always innocent victims. So actually, this is the, the, new, the next book I'm writing, uh, which is to be called The Book of War. And it makes the point that libraries and books are often also the, uh, the seeds of the ideologies which lead to war. Um, as you've said, they're data banks and, and knowledge and in, for intelligence and science and technological advance. So they're actually very active in the process of war making. 
And this is particularly so with maps, because, of course, maps are polemical objects. Um, we find in um, Germany before the Second World War that uh, professors of geography in German universities are pursuing the idea of Lebensraum, of further German conquests, long before the Nazis come along. And indeed, um, it, when the Nazis come in, you have the perverse um, experience of them actually trying to suppress certain geographical texts because they give away their plans too, too early. Um, so we have all of that before we come to issues like how authors fare in war, on the whole, not good. Uh, it's an extremely difficult time for new authors to make their way because of paper shortages. And the role of war, uh, of books in war, as providing comfort to civilians and, of course, being supplied in many thousands uh, to not only soldiers, but also prisoners of war, because they are a captive audience in every sense of the word. And the English prisoners of war in German camps particularly read enormously, not least because the, their German captors were much keener on them reading than they were on tunneling. So they made every effort to uh, even allow them to take exams and professional qualifications. Uh, the German guards would help put out the chairs in the examination room um, because this was something they wanted them to do rather than to be trying to escape. You also talk about the need to evacuate books um, as cultural treasures. And I might be pronouncing it incorrectly, but is it Louvain Library in Belgium was uh, deliberately destroyed twice in both the First and then the Second World War. Um, and also the idea of libricide sort of right, wiping out written record of entire cultures. Why are books and libraries targets of war, Arthur? Well, the, the, this is sadly something that's really ubiquitous throughout human history. And, and, and I think really the, the answer to it is because they, they represent uh, both memory and they represent culture. Um, and if you are intent on, um, on, on conquering or subjugating a, another nation or uh, trying to destroy um, its, its heritage, then the library is a, is a very good target for that, sadly. Um, another key reason is that for, for a long um, part of the history of the library, they've often also been mingled in with archives. Uh, and archives, again, as holding uh, administrative records, uh, as holding, for example, in the 16th century, you know, often uh, uh, land titles or deeds made them a, a very good target, for example, during the, the Peasants' War in Germany, where bands of peasants would often go to the, monast go to, uh, the monasteries, who were their, often their, their overlords, and the first thing they would identify is the library and archive room and, and burn or destroy all the documentation, not necessarily because they hated books, but they hated the land deeds that titled to... Um, uh, title to the monastery. So this is something you see uh, you, you see everywhere. Um, I mean, the, the conquest of, of Mexico and the destruction of uh, Aztec uh, literary heritage by the Spanish is, is a very good example. Uh, we know of so many examples from the, the last, uh, last century and a half or so. But the one thing I would emphasize too is that for every case of libricide, of the deliberate destruction, there's also cases of, of book plunder in a sense that the conquerors, so to speak, also wish to preserve the literary heritage by, by taking it back home and then either studying it or redistributing it as spoils. And this is something the, the Swedes did, for example, in the 17th century, 
the Swedish Empire, which uh, specifically had instructions to its officers whenever they entered a conquered town, they were to identify a local official who could point them out to any libraries there. They could then be shipped off in carts back to Sweden and then from Stockholm, neatly divided between all the university and cathedral libraries, where indeed uh, much of this sort of German and Polish plunder still remains today. So looking at the sort of wider, I guess, global context now, I think there was an interesting point that you make um, around the fact that when the West is largely thinking, "Mm, what's the role of libraries and do they have a future? low-income countries are actually establishing libraries or certainly um, the small mobile libraries. There's a proliferation globally. Um, What impact have these had um, in parts of the world that don't have access to books or haven't had access? Yes, mobile libraries um, sadly have diminished in the the last 30 years and perhaps were abandoned too too early. Uh, Something will come up back to probably when we talk about the future of the libraries. But they were, first of all, uh, an enormous boom in rural areas. Uh, And then actually, they played quite an important role also in wartime when libraries were temporarily closed because because of bombing. Um, In uh, the uh, global south, um, I think the network has grown more successfully through um, fixed libraries than it has through mobile uh, libraries, partly because mobile libraries always depend on a network of roads, uh, and those may not always be available to get to smaller communities. Um, In recent years, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, spent billions assisting um, libraries in, 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 in the global south to provide Wi-Fi access uh, universally so that all people would have access to, to, to Wi-Fi and computers. Um, very uh, effective programs, always with, with the cooperation uh, of the local authorities, local municipalities. But um, I think that will be tend to turn out to be transitional. I mean, must we must be? I would think within twenty years of being able to put a a, a sort of uh, web cloud over the whole earth. At which point, people won't be looking to go into libraries for computers in quite the same way they are today. I suppose something that we've seen during the COVID pandemic is actually there has been reportedly a rise in reading and people buying books, um, and this idea that actually. Um, and I think you describe it beautifully as libraries are these slow thinking spaces and a book creates a mindfulness class of one. So during the pandemic, have we seen a sort of um, return to reading? And, and you know, how do you think books can help our mental health? I definitely feel that we've seen that return to reading. Uh, I mean, bookshops have done uh, reasonably well out of the pandemic, I should say. Libraries um you know, many public libraries less so, but just because of forced closures rather than anything else. But librarians have continued to provide lots of services throughout. Um, I, I mean, I think I think libraries and books are are, are incredibly important to uh, to people's mental health. Um, and I think a lot of it comes from this sense that you know we have all this information available to us nowadays. Uh, anyone with an internet connection can look up almost anything they want to. Um, but there's also the sense that uh, it creates a lot of pressure for people. 
this sends all, all this information out there, and also the fact that you have so much thrust upon uh, upon you. Whereas if you can go to a, a, a library and you can just uh, you can browse to your own delight, you know, without any pressure on you, um, that's where you uh, come to to much sort of slower thought and also the the freedom to uh, to go beyond what you would usually choose. You know, if you if you if you go on Amazon, it will recommend books to you uh, that it thinks you will already like. In a library, you can ask for recommendations, but you're at your liberty to choose whatever you want and to, to sort of take your path and, and see where it goes. And I think that combined with the general sort of uh, you know, the, the library providing a quiet space of reflection, that is, um, um, yeah, I think paramount uh, for many people's um, mental health these days. You start off the book um, talking about a, a library in, in London, in the UK, where, you know, they've had to fight for its survival. Um, and you come back to it at the end and you, you say that libraries only last as long as people find them useful. They need to adapt to survive. So I suppose, you know, my question is, what is the fate of the modern day public library? Um, as Arthur says, books you know, have to compete for our attention and that funding is, you know, being cut in an increasingly uncertain world. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the books actually have a better future or a or safer future to look forward to than, than public libraries. But here we mustn't, here we mustn't confuse the situation with, in, in Britain with a global situation. I think in Britain we do have a crisis of the branch library, that is small branches with a declining and uh, ailing uh, usership um, where they can't now hold enough book stock to remain really interesting to anything other than the core, uh, core usership. Uh, for instance, um, I use our local public library here in St Andrews, but it probably only has about 2,000 books uh, on the shelves, whereas our local independent bookseller has 30,000 books. So to some extent, the browsing function you used to enjoy in libraries is being transferred to, to, to these uh, splendid independent bookshops. So I can see a situation in which branch libraries will either be handed over to the local community to use them, uh, to, to run them as volunteers. This has happened very successfully for one of our Fife libraries. Um, or they could easily be replaced by a um, mobile library. Uh, the, re, the sort of rebuilding of the mobile library network, uh, as happens very effectively on Orkney, for instance, um, because with an aging clientele for libraries or mothers and children largely stuck at home, you could see that their interests could be catered for equally well by a, a revived mobile service. What I would say is all the campaigners we talk to always put the case for the survival of the library in terms of how the, uh, of computer space, of a warm place to go, read newspapers, um, somewhere that uh, if you're on your own at home, you can go and at least see other people. And all of that makes good sense, but none of that had anything to do with books. And if you take out the books from the equation, then you just have one other council building. And it's not at all clear why it should even be called a library. Thank you. 
That was the authors of The Library, A Fragile History, interviewed by my colleague Kate Whiting. Big thanks for joining us on the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave us a review, and don't forget to check out our sister podcasts, Radio Davos and Meet the Leader. This episode of the Book Club podcast was presented by my colleague Kate Whiting and myself, Beatrice DiCaro. Production was with Taz Kelleher and Gareth Nolan. And thanks to our podcast editor, Robin Pomeroy. We'll be back soon, but thanks for listening and goodbye.